morning, Door of Hope. Um, as we continue in the season of anticipation known as Advent, we get to join Christians all over the world in lighting the Advent candles, which um, just help remind us of the first coming of Jesus, the light of the world, 2,000 years ago, and the second coming of Jesus that we still wait for. We light the second candle in peace. You can look over at the screen. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. You can please stand for scripture reading. We're reading from Luke 3, 1 through 18. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother, Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Traconius, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all of the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all of the flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up the children of Abraham. For Abraham, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what can we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all by saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So many other exhortations he preached good news to the people. You may be seated. Well, it is so good to be with you all. If I didn't introduce myself earlier, I'm Cameron, one of the pastors and elders here. Um, it's really good to be with you. And we are, as, we've, as it should be obvious by now, we're continuing on in our Advent series. And last week we mentioned that the word Advent comes from Latin. It means coming or arrival. And it's a period of time many, Christians, many Christian traditions set aside each year to reflect both on the first coming of Jesus at Christmas, that's obvious, but what's less obvious is that it's, it's historically been a time to, to really acknowledge where we sit in history. What we believe as Christians is that we're, we're not just 
the, the only significant period of waiting wasn't just for the Messiah to come the first time. It's also this period where now we're waiting for him to return, to actually put all things right. Um, so, so we wait. And uh, this year we're examining four of the traditional sort of Advent themes. We mentioned different traditions do it slightly differently, but in certain traditions the, the themes are hope, peace, joy, and love. Uh, on this second Sunday of Advent, as Annie already mentioned, we're looking at Luke 3, uh, verses 1 through 18, to explore what it means to prepare in peace. Peace, like each of those words, hope, love, joy, um, it's really easy to trivialize. It's really easy to trivialize. It's easy to let it lose its power. It's easy to dismiss. Um, it's the stock answer given at beauty pageants. Um, at least it was in the 90s. I don't really follow the, the uh, beauty pageant scene anymore. I'm not, I'm not really up to date on that. Uh, but you know, the question, what's the one thing you'd love to see happen in your lifetime? World peace, of course. Is there a better answer? No, it's a great answer, even if it's become a cliche. Um, again, cheap plastic peace sign medallions are part of like kitschy Halloween costumes. Um, it's thoughtlessly referenced without any reference to a single idea regarding how to actually go about achieving peace between diverse nations and diverse people groups and diverse worldviews, um, diverse value holders with warring visions of what basic human flourishing looks like. It's great to talk about peace. It really is. It genuinely is. But can we say anything more than just a vague call to want to see peace? In my opinion, um, John Lennon's song, Imagine, is one of the worst offenders in this regard. And don't get me wrong, I, I love the Beatles. Uh, I, I, I love John Lennon. He's clearly one of an all-timer songwriter. Um, and and I, I love a lot of his solo material. In fact, that album, Imagine, I think is beautiful, great record. Um, but the song Imagine, to me, captures him at, at its worst. Um, it's this sort of utopic vision defined by what isn't there. He, he, he sings about, imagine, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no countries, there's no religion, there are no possessions, which gives way to, imagine all the people living life in peace. Oh, 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 yeah, you can't resist. It's a great melody. It's not that none of those things can cause barriers to peace. They obviously can. Just read a history text. Obviously, those things can cause severe division amongst people. Um, it's just that at the end of the day, at the end of the day, every human utopic vision for achieving lasting peace from the sort of lawless, free love, hippie colonies of the 60s and 70s to the technocratic communisms of the Soviet Union or modern China to the capitalist impulses of the United States of America, every one of them's failed. Every one of them's failed. There is no idea that's been tried that hasn't failed to bring about the kind of peace that we all long for in our human hearts. Um, everything we try, I would submit, if history is any indicator, it will fail at one point or another if we give it enough time. Um, we need rescue from the outside. I, I, I don't think we're going to fix this mess that we're in ourselves. And by mess, I just mean the basic human predicament. We need an incorruptible, holy good, holy just, all wise leadership. We need a final price to be paid that can satisfy our endless blood feuds and revenge fantasies. We need someone with the power to actually change what's broken in people from the inside out, 
to change hearts and minds for good. We need, I contend, a prince of peace. Prince of peace. Um, I think we should pray, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we do need these things. And the, the countless songs and... Uh, like, like the, the desire for peace, Lord, is this constant and pervasive yearning. It's expressed in our art. It expressed, it's expressed in our conversations. It's expressed in our politics. And it's a good desire, Lord. Um, but we just confess that we are at a loss how, for where to find it, how to find it, apart from you. I am, at least. Lord, we need you so much. And as this text that at, on first glance might read like, what in the world does this have to do with Advent? What in the world does this have to do with any of this stuff? Um, it, it, it includes this, this such hopeful um, reminder, Lord, that, that you care deeply about human flourishing. You care deeply about peace. And you actually have a vision and a plan and the means uh, to help us get there, Lord. So we pray that this morning we would recognize our need of you, the, the need for this Prince of Peace, this King of Peace, who has come and who will come again. And, and the, the privilege it is, Lord, if, if all goes well, to actually get to be your hands and feet, to be vehicles of peace in the here and now while we wait. That's what we want to understand. That's not what we just want to understand with our heads, but that's what we want to move into, Lord. In the words of this text, we want to bear this kind of fruit, Lord, that's in keeping with the repentance of our hearts. So help us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the passage that Annie read for us, it starts with um, kind of setting the scene, and it, it, it sets the scene in two ways. First, it gives us historical location. It mentions all these. I, I was joking that I was glad for her to read that scripture because I don't know how to pronounce most of those <laughs> regions. So I got to throw her under the bus. That's wonderful. Um, now, you did a great job. But yeah, all these, these regions, it's telling you what ruler was in what place at what time. And so Luke, the gospel writer, is helping us kind of triangulate a, a position in, in history according to what was going on politically at the time. So it establishes that. But, but then it also establishes John, this figure, John the Baptist, as part of a tradition. Just what kind of guy is this John who's going to proclaim these kind of, you know, heated things? And what it, what it tells us is that John is part of the tradition of um, the Hebrew prophets, which, which was this interesting group of outsider, usually like wild-eyed, confrontational prophets um, who God chose to be his mouthpieces to speak truth to power uh, when the kings and the priests occupying Israel's former, formal leadership had strayed from faithfulness. So when the kings are evil and the priests are evil, God says, I'm going to take this weird guy <laughs> out here in the desert and he's going to go and he's going to be this almost embarrassing reminder of what I'm actually about as your covenant God. And the prophets would do weird things, strange things, and you've got to think of prophets as these sort of outside litigators who come in and are speaking like, you need to change to the formal leaders, both political and religious in Israel. John is one of those is what this is trying to tell us. He, if, if you were familiar with these things, you would say, oh, very much, John fits the pattern. John fits right in. He's proclaiming the word of God, it tells us, and he's baptizing people out in the wilderness. The other gospels tell us that he wore a camel's hair shirt 
and he ate uh, wild locusts and honey. So you just immediately are like, it feels comfortable, it feels like Portland, it's wonderful. Um, nothing weird about it at all. Yeah, no, strange, strange dude, this John. And more than just being a prophet in this sort of pattern of the prophets, John was a promise. He was fulfilling a specific prophecy, this tells us. Um, he, he was a specific prophet who would prepare the way of the Lord to come. This Luke makes it explicit for us. He says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah. So if you were to turn to Isaiah, um, you would find this. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's who John is. That's who John is. That's what the message he's come to bring. He's come to prepare the way for the Messiah. Um, so the rest of this passage is going to tell us just what formed John's preparation. In what way was he preparing the way for the Messiah? Well, we read on and we discover. The first thing he proclaims, starting in verse 7, is a judgment that's coming that leads to repentance. I'll read it again. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. If you don't, if you're not familiar with the way snakes and vipers were viewed in, in uh, the Hebrew literature, that's bad. That's a bad, that's, that's bad. You don't want to be a brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with Repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John, he's a peaceable guy. He's pretty chill. He's pretty lax. No, John, John's bringing the heat here. John is bringing the heat here. Um, he's calling his fellow countrymen to, to come and receive this like cleansing baptism um, that signifies a heart of repentance. And repentance just, just means um, to turn. It means to, to kind of do a 180, an about face. So it's kind of, uh, yeah, repent is an act of preparation that was the heart of his message. His, his word is, judgment's coming. Like, Part of what the Messiah is going to do is to, is to bring about judgment. And what he says is, your genealogy won't save you. That's, that's what he's poking at there. He says, you, well, we're, we're children of Abraham. We're, we're, uh, you know, we're part of the family. We're grafted into this thing. We have nothing to worry about. He says, no, 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 that doesn't matter. If God needs to take a rock and make it a genuine child of, of Abraham, he'll do that. Don't coast on your sort of credentials or your family tree or whatever else. No, you, you yourself have to repent and trust this Messiah that's coming. So judgment's coming. Your genealogy won't save you. Faith must be, finally, personal and individual. Of course it's lived out in genuine, deep community, but you alone are finally responsible for your heart before God. And it's a call to repent, to change directions, to turn 180. Repentance and faith are like two sides of the same coin. Maybe you've heard that before. Repentance signifies the turning from yourself, from your idols, from whatever it is that's giving you meaning and purpose and value and dignity in this life. 
Um, it's saying you, you must turn from that and turn to God, and the turning to is faith. So the repentance is turning away from the thing, and the, the faith is turning to the thing, the genuine thing, God himself. So repent and get baptized. It's going to show that your repentance is, uh, is what you genuinely desire. It's an outward expression of what's going on inside. And then he says this thing about bearing fruit. He says genuine repentance is going to produce genuine fruit. It's going to actually bear something in your life if it's genuine. So repentance and fruit are not identical. He, they're separate categories, but he's saying fruit should flow from repentance. Okay, so what the heck is that fruit? What's it supposed to look like? Now we get into the heart of the matter. The crowds were hearing all this, and like as many... It is the case many of the times when the word of God goes out, people were cut to the heart. There were plenty of people who said, like, this sounds serious. I'm, I'm inclined to believe this. So what do we do? What do we actually do, John? Tell us what to do. And he answered them. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors then came also to be baptized, and they said, well, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, and we, what should we do? And he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So Luke gives us these three case studies. John tells the whole crowd something to do, and then these two groups, these tax collectors and these soldiers, they say, what about us? And he gives them kind of specific word. And this isn't all-encompassing. These aren't the only three kinds of fruit of repentance. Um, but what, what, what does he say? General crowd, he says, look, you want to bear fruit that shows you have a genuinely repentant heart? Take care of your neighbor. If you have cloaks, give them to the person who doesn't have one. If you have food, give it to the person who doesn't have any. Meet the needs of those around you. Address the suffering in your midst. That's number one. With the tax collectors, he says, as you've probably all heard, we talk about it, we've talked about it a lot throughout the gospel according to Mark, tax collectors were these sort of people who were aligned with the Roman Empire. They were Jews who served Rome, who came and collected taxes from their fellow Jews on behalf of Rome. They were absolutely hated. And what was horrible about them especially was that the way they got paid was by taking extra money from the people they were collecting taxes from. So they were incentivized to say, okay, well, you owe whatever the number is, you owe 100, and what I'm actually gonna tell you is that you owe 120, because I gotta get paid. And the, and the worse these guys were, the more they would try to extort from their fellow countrymen and women by taking more and more and more money. And many of them were very, very wealthy because of this. So it wasn't, it was bad enough that they were kind of the, the face of Rome exacting what it wanted from people, but they were actually like taking way more than was, uh, than was right and appropriate. So John says, hey, you guys, you want, you want to know what, <laughs> you're asking me what you should do? Stop it. Stop doing what you're doing. Do your work honestly. Do your work honestly. And very similarly to the soldiers, we, we, don't, we can't tell a lot historically what was going on here, but somehow these, these groups of soldiers were extorting money, probably using their authority, uh, and we see threatening and falsely accusing people and yeah, taking people's money illegitimately. Just says, whatever, whatever dishonest, whatever unjust practices you're tangled up in, stop. Stop. Because there's a king coming. There's a king coming who is fundamentally opposed to these things, and we can prepare now. 
we can, we can begin to live in accord with his will and his desire and what the values of his kingdom are now. So cut it out. Quit stealing and start giving to those in need. So what do all these things have in common? Common thread, love your neighbor. Pragmatically care for your neighbor. And though the word isn't used, we can see in this passage has been linked historically with the idea of peace. Become a peacemaker. Become a peacemaker. So what is peace? You've probably heard the Hebrew word shalom, the Greek word irene. They both uh, get translated to the English peace. And it means to bring something to completion, most fundamentally. It could talk about a building or whatever else, but the most important way peace gets talked about is in bringing kind of full restoration and completion to relationships. Relationships between God and his, his creations, you and me, people. Um, completion, wholeness, reconciliation between people horizontally, even between nations. So it's, it's a reconciliation and a completion. Um, it's related to genuinely self-giving, others-oriented love, finding expression in mutual care. It's related to mercy. It's related to justice. The clearest pictures we get of shalom, of peace, of Irene in the Bible are in Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall. You see people living in perfect accord with, with one another, with God, with the world. And then we see it again in the passages that talk about the life to come, the new heavens and the new earth, the, the, the glorious future that Christ is going to install. We see it again. There's peace, there's shalom, there's completeness, there's wholeness. And it's beautiful. Some of my favorite passages in the Bible. Um, the Apostle Paul, he wrote in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 this. He said, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Peace. Peace is meant to be at the heart of our identity and our activity as Christians. And it's kind of interesting to read, read this passage. I, I think when we read this, when you heard that, I'm guessing there was, for many of us, a react, there was, this was my reaction when I first re-picked this passage up this week. You read about this, oh, take care of people. Oh, that's so beautiful. We like that. We love that. And, and you should. You should like that. You should be excited about that. But then you see it right next to these passages about, hey, the ax is coming for the trees that aren't bearing fruit. And they're going to be tossed into the fire. And we go, Oh, now I don't like that. <laughs> you know, I don't like that. And I, but I want, what I want you to see is that right here in this passage, and this is the way throughout, throughout the scriptures, it's a consistent way the scriptures talk about this, it, it's the embodiment of a phrase that we hear quite a bit in our, in our modern politics. No justice, no peace. I trust you've heard that before. No justice, no peace. It's been a rallying cry for many people, and it reflects it reflects a biblical reality. The Bible affirms genuine peace cannot be separated from genuine justice. To turn a blind eye to injustice is to sacrifice peace. So these things are explicitly, intri intrinsically related. You cannot have one without the other. Another thing I'd point out is that in our, in our rush to sort of talk about you know, valuing peace or whatever, which is again good, we, we are tempted to embrace false peace. 
the Hebrew prophets, you hear them cry out in Jeremiah and a few places, um, this, this notion of there are people who are crying out, peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's a very human, very human temptation, especially in interpersonal relationships. In my marriage, that is a real temptation, frankly. I'm a, I'm a fairly conflict-avoidant guy who, who, who longs for peace, but do I? Do I long for peace? Do I long for wholeness? Do I long for completion? Or do I long for the appearance of peace? Do I, do I long for just no drama? What, this, what, this, what, what Jeremiah would remind us is that it's very easy to say, I want peace. Yes, I, I just want people to get along, but you haven't actually done the hard work of addressing. Is there injustice? Is there evil? Is, is, is there someone being harmed? Is there something really dark going on here that actually needs to be, be, be addressed? even in a relationship? Is there dysfunction? Is there a way in which I'm not valuing this person? Is there a way in which I'm really hurting them that I'm just trying to paper over? Peace, peace, but there is no peace. In his excellent book, The Screwtape Letters, I think we have copies over there. Um, if you don't know this book, it's, it's this brilliant book C.S. Lewis wrote where uh, it's written from the perspective of sort of a senior demon writing to a junior demon. And it's all these little letters about, hey, here's how you really can mess with and tempt and throw off a, a, a Christian, the Christian that you're supposed to be sort of messing with. And, and the senior demon writes this at one point. He says, I've had patience of my own so well in hand, he's talking about Christians, that they could be turned at a moment's notice from impassioned prayers for a wife's or a son's soul to beating or insulting the real wife or son without a qualm. For most of us, it's probably not that extreme, but um, yeah, in, in our piety, we can, we can value the idea of peace. Think we are peacemakers ourselves, especially in our prayers, especially when we're on stage talking about these things. But then when push comes to shove, is this actually penetrating our hearts and our lives? Are we actually bearing the kind of fruit that's in keeping with genuine repentance? That's the question. So again, there's an uncomfortably complicated emotional reaction to this passage, I think, for many of us. We like the neighbor-loving, shalom-bringing, justice-enshrining commands, but we're disturbed. We're disturbed by references to a coming judgment. But the Bible is trying to get us to see, indeed, that there can be no genuine peace without genuine justice. And actually, it's good news, friends, that God promises to bring both. He is not the God who turns a disinterested eye away from the cries of the vulnerable and those in pain and those who are suffering and those who are experiencing injustice. But if that is the case, he's got to do something about it. And that's the tension. That's the tension of these great biblical themes. So Jesus came. He was foretold. He was, he was declared this in the prophets and by the prophet Isaiah to be a prince of peace who would usher in a new thriving peace in his kingdom. And how were the people to prepare for this Jesus? What John is saying is that that's by beginning to live into that peace in preparation as an expression of their faith. Not that, that that's what saves them, but as a response to who this God is. So the final section of this passage turns from the fruit to the Messiah, to the Christ. It says that as people were in expectation, they were starting to question concerning John, it, is he the Christ? 
this guy's, this guy's kind of got some provocative things to say. He's kind of wild. He's kind of out there. He's got some interesting stuff. Uh, this is kind of mess, Messiah-esque talk. Maybe he's the Christ. But John answered them all. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. John never lost sight of the fact that I'm, he's just the messenger. He's just the one preparing the way. There's another one coming. He says, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And that, that idiom there, it's, uh, you did not want to touch an ancient Hebrew sandal. <laughs> Feet were dirty, the shoes were dirty. That was kind of a task reserved for the lowest of the low. And John is saying, I'm not even qualified to do that job for the Messiah. Don't get it twisted. I baptize you with water, he says, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Then he goes on, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. <laughs> Does this strike you as good news? Luke has no problem saying, this, all this stuff, this is good news. And I think we have to work to see it, but it's there. So anyway, John reaffirms his identity as the forebearer of the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Messiah, but there is one who's coming who is going to be this king, this prince of peace, the one who can actually judge correctly and impartially and with full wisdom and with full understanding and with full goodness and with full purity. Um, he's coming. The prince of peace is coming. He's already here. He's already incarnated. This story takes place post-Christmas. Post this is the kind of the introduction to Jesus beginning his formal ministry. So what makes Jesus a candidate for our hopes? If we've all got this hope for actual peace to, be, to come, to be done in this world, what makes Jesus from just being something that, you know, John Lennon should be able to discard or throw to the side and say, no, that's not going to work, that's not going to work, that's not going to work. Why should we actually trust that Jesus is different from, from the various other forms of peace that have been tried and that have failed? Well, the Christian answer is the power of God. That he's the creator of it all. That he's the one with authority. He is the one with power. He's the one with perfection. He's the one who's incorruptible. He's the one who can baptize his people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Those two images mean he can actually empower you with the divine power of the Spirit of God to actually live differently. He can actually go into your innermost places and do the work necessary to make you the kind of person whose heart beats for justice and for peace. That he's not just giving you slogans or giving you political pressure or giving you this or that. He's actually going to go in and do the surgery necessary to change your desires and to empower you. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about that recently. And he says with fire, which most scholars agree on, on this image here, what the fire is referring to is kind of a cleansing and a purifying work. He can really empower you and he can really purify you. Why, why would we believe that? Why would we believe that? I would say if we, if, if we hadn't had the Son of Man come and teach the things he taught, do the things he did, die publicly, historically verifiable on a Roman cross, and then three days later rise, to the, rise again, we would just have to say, yeah, that Jesus was an interesting guy, 
Maybe we would say, oh, he's a great teacher. Maybe we would say, oh, no, he was an evil teacher. I don't like it. Whatever, whatever your take on Jesus is, you could dismiss him as a relic of history. Yep, that was another project uh, that tried and it failed and, uh, you know, it left no discernible mark on the world. <laughs> Historically, certainly that's not the case, but we believe this man rose from the dead. And if he really did rise from the dead and appear to his disciples over a period of 40 days and the, the gospel writers are leaving these footnotes of people you can go talk to in this village or that that saw him and that this movement against all odds actually became <laughs> the most life and culture transforming thing that actually outlasted the Roman Empire, the greatest empire in the history of the world, um, I think we should listen to him. I think we should listen to him. Jesus did not just come, teach some things, and then fade off into history. He came, he taught some things, he was killed unjustly for the forgiveness of our sins, and then he rose again. And he is still alive, is what probably most of us in this room have come to believe, and praise God for that. He is not just another peace project destined to failure. He's the one who has already achieved victory over sin and evil and injustice and death. He's already done it and he's going to complete the work one day. That is our hope. That is our hope. And this king, this king, he comes, and yes, there is, there is a threat here. Because, friends, I, I've said this before, I'll say it again this way. There's a lot of injustice in my heart. There's a lot of evil in my heart. There's a lot of sin in my heart. And if God was content to just let me be the worst version of myself wreaking havoc on all of you guys, that would not be good news for you. But he doesn't. The message has come to me many times across my life. First, most importantly, on my mom's lap when I was a child that no, I am on the wrong side of this equation. I am a sinner. And he loves me so much that he did everything necessary to redeem me and rescue me and to heal me and to change me. Now, 30-some years later, like he's still working on me and he's still turning up all kinds of evil things that need to be addressed. And you know what part of that is? It's he loves me and he loves you because he's not content to leave me as a threat to you guys. And that's the same for you if you're a follower of Christ. It's like his love that he cares. He doesn't, he, he is not blind or indifferent to the sufferings of his people. He wants to come into each one of us and do the work necessary to change us. That's his love, friends. His judgment, his justice is his love. It's just the flip side of it if we can have the eyes to see. So the message has come to me and it said, um, you are unsafe. That's probably a very modern way of putting that. But you are unsafe for your neighbors. I can't let you continue on, certainly not into eternity future. Will you come to me and let me cleanse you and let me heal you and let me fix you and let me deal with that? And there was a time on my mom's knee I said, yes, Jesus, I want you. I want you. And I've, I've with peaks and valleys, been following him since. Um, the king of peace he makes his invitation in peace to all of us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote this. He said, Jesus does not want to set up his kingdom of peace by force, but where people willingly submit themselves to him and let him rule over them, he will give them his wonderful peace. Isn't that beautiful? And we all have these moments where we want him to come more forcefully, and he will one day. 
but in the here and now, he, he's, not, he's not forcing anybody to do anything. He's offering what he has and saying, come to me. Come, come taste and see that the Lord is good. Come see the peace that I have to offer. Come into this family with me. I've done everything. I've cleared every barrier. All you have to do is just come and receive it by faith. So this king makes his invitation to us in peace. And I say, may we respond, friends. If you have before, praise God. If you have not, today the invitation comes to you. Come and taste and see that this Lord is good. Come see the peace that he has to offer you. Trust him. So, to connect this back, what, so the question, you may be asking the question, what does any of this have to do with Christmas? <laughs> we haven't really talked about Christmas. This is a story from after Christmas. We are not waiting for the Messiah to come anymore. He's come. Um, we are not waiting for him to come at Christmas. That was, you know, 2030 years ago-ish. Um, we are not waiting for that. Nor are we like John, where we're waiting to prepare the way for him to start his public ministry. That's what John was going to do in the next story is Jesus comes and Jesus gets baptized by John. And then he begins to teach and preach over this period of three years and it leads up to the cross. We're not waiting for that either. That's already happened. The cross has happened. Our forgiveness has been purchased once and for all. Not just that, Pentecost has happened. He has actually sent his Holy Spirit into the world to indwell you and to indwell me, to empower us, to cleanse us, to all those things we mentioned. And yet we are still waiting, aren't we? That's where this is an Advent message. We're on the other side of those things, but we are still waiting for the Prince of Peace to come and establish his kingdom. And we must long for it. I think the more we come to know Jesus and learn about him and submit ourselves to him and genuinely taste and see that he's good, the more we see that day coming for the just beautiful thing that it is, the thing that we are just waiting with bated breath for. We are waiting for the Messiah to come again. And the interesting thing is, though our historical circumstances are obviously quite different, our preparation is largely the same as John's. Love God, love people. That's the great commandment he left us, right? Love God and love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything. Make disciples, build up the body of Christ, bear fruit, be presences of peace in this world. And all of this flows from an understanding of our own standing before God in light of Christ's work and the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's interesting to read this. John's telling a bunch of people for whom the Messiah has not come. He has not gone to the cross. He has not empowered them with the Holy Spirit. He says, repent and bear fruit. That's hard work. There's a lot of bootstrapping involved there. We live in the age now where the Spirit of God is within us, actually working through us. We can, we can call, we can lean into this call to bear fruit with so much more confidence because he is at work in us, friends. So we have a fresh confidence. And we should still bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits of peace in this world as a sign of trust that, that, that it really means something. That our efforts to pursue love and peace and justice in this world are not meaningless. They're not going to evaporate with us, you know, when we die because the world is just, you know, matter in motion that's all going to burn up one day and what difference does anything make? No, he's coming back. And he's not leaving this mess where it is. And every 
every effort, every genuinely good thing that we are contributing and doing in this world by his power is just this little preview. It's this little hint that he's coming back. Every good little taste of peace we have in the here and now is just this preview of what's going to happen when he comes in full. So it's worthwhile right now. It's worthwhile right now. So how do we prepare both to celebrate Christmas in a couple weeks, but more importantly for the coming of Christ? Simple. Receive the peace of Christ yourself. Trust him. Repent and trust. Repentance and faith. If you haven't, today the invitation is yours. Seize it. Repent of your sin. We all, have, we all deal with it ongoingly, at least I do. Continue to repent and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. That is still a valid command for us. That's every day of our lives, I think, until he's back. And become the hands and feet of peace and reconciliation. Look for ways to be a peacemaker. You know, this, this, cuts, this cuts against our sort of consumeristic impulses. Christmas is about just how much we can buy and gifts and all that. And I love gifts. It's fun. It's amazing. It can be really beautiful. But um, the way to f- fully engage the Christmas season to the extent that um, we, are, we are working and, and, uh, and acting is by being the hands and feet of peace and reconciliation in this world. Find people who are in need and help them. Pour yourself out. Give, serve, love, lay down your life. Be a foretaste of the kingdom. Be the hands and feet of the Prince of Peace that we say we follow. That's a worthy call for the Advent season, friends. Not to earn our salvation, he's already done that but as a response to this great thing, this great peace he's given us, may we be conduits for it out to others. Amen.